Good morning. You can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, Let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. The word of God. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you now, through the Spirit's power, in this age of the new covenant, in a new covenant church, would come and speak to us, that we would be not torn down, but built up. Paul said his weapons are divinely powerful. And we confess altogether that in ourselves we have no power, except that you've given us the Holy Spirit and are with us now. You've given us your eternal word, which gives life. You've given us a mediator in heaven who's removed all of our sins by his own death and resurrection, who now intercedes for us. Lord, you've given us everything. We in ourselves have nothing, but we have everything. And it is your purpose to to build up all of your people, to cause the saints to grow in holiness and to increase in likeness to Jesus. So we're not able, but you are able, and it is your revealed will. You've promised to do it. So we pray that you would speak to us now in your mercy, in your patience with us, your forbearance, your meekness with us. I pray that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
N.C.S. Lewis's classic book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the most heart-wrenching scene of the whole book occurs when Aslan, the great lion, makes his way by night without telling anyone all the way up to meet the witch and the horde of evil creatures at the stone table. So there they are on the hill, gathered on the top. It's dark, it's night. They're wicked and evil creatures, hags, ghouls, all kinds of evil things that love to destroy. And here comes Aslan, and they see him coming. And he has all the power and authority. He is in charge of everything. And up he comes. And as he gets closer, it becomes evident that he's going to keep his word. And he's not come there to destroy them. So he enters the crowd. They sneer and they jeer. Eventually, they shave his mane. They shame him. They mock him. They spit at him. They tie him up in a whole big garbled mass of cords and flop him up stone table and here comes the white witch the evil queen in charge of it all she's relishing in her moment of victory and here's how C.S. Lewis puts her interaction with Aslan in that moment at last she drew near she stood by Aslan's head her face was working and twitching with passion but his looked up at the sky Still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Then just before she gave the blow, with the knife that is, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now, who has won? Fool, did you not think that by all, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, as our compact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, What will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. And then she plunges the knife into him, and he dies. And you might say that Aslan submitted to the witch. You might say that he was meek. And the witch saw it. But the witch misinterpreted the reason for his meekness. She thought he was a fool and that she had got the upper hand. But as the story plays out, we find out that Aslan was only meek because he wanted to do good to Edmund and save the traitorous young man who had betrayed them all. She misunderstood his meekness. And so we arrive today in 2 Corinthians 10, where Paul opens. He begins this chapter and really the end of the letter, this section, with the subject of meekness, or you could say forbearance, or gentleness, or humility. That's where Paul begins. And he, like Aslan, has been misunderstood in his meekness. So far in 2 Corinthians, we've seen Paul's recounting of some history. It goes like this. Paul knew this church well, and he also knew they had some real serious sin problems. And so instead of going there to spare them, he writes them a letter. And it's severe. It's a rebuke. It's tearful. And it's hard. 
He sends it there by Titus, and then he's waiting to hear how they respond. He doesn't know what they're going to do. But he, he gets good news, because when he does finally find Titus, what does he find? He finds, oh, they repented. They received your letter with humility, with tears and weeping. They repented of their sin, and so Paul rejoices. In the middle of this whole story, we get Paul's sustained five-chapter defense of his apostleship, the great digression. So he explains what he's up to, how he conceives of himself, what the Lord has appointed him to do as a minister of the new covenant, not the old covenant, but a new covenant ministry. And then in chapters 8 and 9, Paul prepares them for what's coming through a collection. So he's going to send some ambassadors, and then later, Paul himself is going to come. And they're to be prepared with this collection. But you should notice, Paul's coming. He's going to see them face to face. And everything sounds good with that, except there's another problem. If Paul comes, there's another potential problem. And it has to do with Paul's meekness, Paul's behavior. At least some of the Corinthians are being influenced by the circulation of some anti-Pauline propaganda. There's some rumors going around, mischaracterizing, slandering Paul, making him seem like something he's not, and Paul knows it. So in chapter 10, where our text begins today, we have a major turning point, turning point in 2 Corinthians. The tone changes dramatically. Most of you are familiar with how the letter goes on. It's stunning. It's stunning the way Paul talks. He sets out an intensely impassioned defense of himself. And I want to ask you a question. How is it, why is it, that Paul would begin such a self-defense on the basis of meekness? Does that not sound counterintuitive? Doesn't meekness mean you shouldn't really be defending yourself at all? And that's where he begins. And then his self-defense, as I said, is intense, heated. So look there at the first verse of chapter 10. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness, meekness pardon me, and gentleness of Christ. But whether or not there's a contradiction depends on what you think meekness is. Is a meek person fearful and quiet and can't bear to look you in the eye and peevish? Is that meekness? Is that your reflex when you hear the word? Well, if so, Paul's defense makes no sense. But we might have the wrong idea, and the Corinthians definitely had the wrong idea of Paul's behavior and Paul's meekness, just like the white witch had the wrong idea about Aslan. And Paul knew that this was all going on. Somehow he had gotten word that all this was circulating and not circulating and falling on deaf ears, but at least for some, the hook was sinking in. People were starting to believe it. So Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13. The first thing we need to do is pause and look a little bit further about exactly what were the rumors. What was going on? What was being said? And we find out in our text in verse 1 and verse 10 most clearly. So verse 1, Paul describes himself and he says there, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. So the NIV puts those words meek or timid in quotes and also bold in quotes. So as to say, this is what the rumor was. 
Paul, when you're in person with us, when you're here looking us eye to eye, man to man, you're meek and timid. But when you're standing way far away with the safety of distance and you're just writing letters, oh, now you're bold. Now you're bold. You're two-faced. You're a hypocrite. You're a coward. And then more clearly in verse 10, they're quoted explicitly. Verse 10 reads, For they say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech contemptible. So you get the idea. It's like a, the German shepherd behind the window of the house when you're walking up on the sidewalk and he's terrifying, his bark is loud, his teeth are sharp. But then later that night, the burglars come in through the back window and he tucks tail and runs and whimpers. That's who you are, Paul. Or the seven-year-old boy who, with his friends in the dark, is telling him how brave he is, but then he gets up on the cliff and he's going to jump in and he chickens out. Or like Peter, who told Jesus, Oh, I'll never deny you. Even if everybody falls away, I will never deny you. And then Peter gets in the middle of the crowd. Jesus is on trial. Everybody knows what's coming. It's not looking good. And Peter, swearing up and down, he's never met that man. Is that you, Paul? Or maybe it would sound something like this. Paul, if you really had all this authority, you wouldn't put up with this stuff from the Corinthians. You'd put them right in their place. You'd show them how it is. Don't you guys remember how sin-riddled the Corinthian church was? Think of 1 Corinthians, for example. This church has got a lot going on. They're tolerating incest. They're factious. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. They're abusing the Lord's Supper, not waiting for each other. They're failing to follow through with a collection that they said they would do. And now where is it? Paul's having to come around for round two to encourage them to do what they said they would do and what they should want to do. If Paul was really an apostle, he wouldn't tolerate this mess. He'd let them have it. He writes these bold letters, but when he gets in front of them, no authority, not in charge. And to make things worse, there was some more history. The situation had unfolded in a way where the propaganda had some power. The history is that Paul didn't charge them any money. He's going to talk about that later in uh, the subsequent chapters here. He didn't charge for his ministry, and there were some other people who were charging. And everybody knows if it's free, it's probably not worth much. Maybe these guys really do have something more to offer, surely. I mean, Paul's not even charging us, right? Or what about when he had this sin issue to address, and he sent this tearful, severe letter. He was going to come. He told us he was coming. And instead of coming to address us face to face, he stays back and just writes a letter from afar. Change of plans. All of this is evidence that Paul's not really who we thought he was. And maybe these other guys, these super apostles, really are where it's at. Paul's not just after trying to save his ego, his reputation. He knows that if this goes on and they end up rejecting Paul, they will also reject his message, his gospel. He says later that these super apostles have a different gospel and another Jesus. So the stakes are high and Paul knows it. So with that as background, we need to see exactly how Paul responds. He turns over all of this. He paints a whole new picture and shows him what reality actually is. And we're going to consider his reply here 
in two main sections. First, verses 1 to 6, where Paul insists that true meekness, true meekness, does not come from weakness, if you'll pardon the rhyme. And in verse 7 through 11, Paul insists on and explains his own authority. He insists on it, and he explains it. So verses 1 through 6, true meekness does not come from weakness. As I said, he begins on the basis of Jesus' character, Jesus' own meekness and gentleness. And Paul knows that for the Corinthians, and we know for us, if we get this aspect of Jesus' character right, it changes everything. It turns the whole world upside down. It totally shows Paul's behavior and his decision-making in the right light. Jesus' gentleness and meekness is not the meekness I described earlier, that peevish fearfulness. That's something pathetic. But Jesus' own meekness and gentleness is something glorious. And we, Grace Church, have to get it right this morning. So let's first try to get a grip on the words themselves. The first word, meekness, Translated meekness usually refers to the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. That is, you're not all about you. You're not a me monster. You're not self-absorbed. And the second word, translated gentleness, typically refers to the quality of making allowances despite facts that might suggest reason for a different reaction. The quality of making allowances, despite facts, that might suggest reason for a different reaction. It means that you're patient and gentle with somebody else, whoever it is, despite the fact that they don't deserve it. So if you take both words together, you get the idea that Jesus is not in it for himself, not self-absorbed, but instead kind-hearted, forbearing and gentle, despite our sin. Think about him. Like Rick began earlier, who are we talking about? He's the source of every created thing. And he now upholds, as we know so well, all things by the word of his power. All those distant galaxies that you see, he upholds them this morning. And in this wood, on this desk, every atom and molecule, all the little electrons that whir around the middle of the atom, he upholds them. He knows all about them. He knows all your thoughts, all the secret and shameful ones that pop into your head and you don't know where they came from. He knows all the skeletons in your closet, this dark history that's so hard to talk about. He's risen and enthroned today and forever. And we don't feel it, but really soon we're all going to see him face to face and stand before him for judgment. His authority is absolute. It's unchallenged. Like in Psalm 2, when the mockers mock, God laughs. He scoffs at them. There is no challenge. And Jesus knows all of this. He is not ignorant. He's fully aware, more aware than we are, of his own authority. He knows how in charge he is. And still, he's meek and gentle to his people. 
I'll name just one example from the Gospels. Jesus, on trial, before Pontius Pilate, he's done nothing wrong, the false accusations are coming, the religious leaders are over here peppering him repetitively with these things that he didn't do. And here's Pilate saying, hey man, don't you hear what they're saying? You better say something, because they're bringing some charges. And then you get Matthew 27, 14. And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. Like the sheep that's silent before the slaughter. So is Jesus. Meek and mild. Willing to be patient and forbearing. This is where Paul begins. He brings to the Corinthians' mind's eye the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically his meekness and gentleness. Now, we need to see that verses 1 and 2 are an appeal. Paul's making a request. He's entreating them not to make him use the same sort of boldness with them that he knows he's going to have to for sure use with some people. Look at verse 1. I urge you. Verse 2. I ask that I need not be bold. He does not want to come in severity. He doesn't want to come in judgment. He knows there are going to be some who until the very end will have their heels dug into the mud and they won't submit. And he's going to have to exercise judgment. But he doesn't want that to happen. He loves these people. He loves them. He'd much rather be patient and forbearing, drawing them along. So Paul argues negatively by the example of Jesus that all meekness is not from weakness. As for the positive explanation of Paul's weakness, more on that in the second section. Because first, Paul gives a second way that he upends the rumors having to do with an important distinction. The distinction is between walking in the flesh and walking according to the flesh. What is walking in the flesh? Throughout 2 Corinthians, the whole letter, Paul intentionally puts his own weakness on display over and over and over. It's a major theme of the letter. And he brags about it. He's highlighting it on purpose. I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which we've already had. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that's breakable, fragile, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Do you hear the weakness? Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Paul embraces his weakness. He insists it in no way detracts from his apostolic authority and ministry. It actually provides an opportunity to show where the power comes from, namely from God. And this weakness, this embodiedness, this tent that's going to collapse the death that's coming, these frail bodies. That's called walking in the flesh, and Paul concedes as much. It's a major theme of his letter. But that's not the same thing as walking according to the flesh. Paul draws the distinction, right? He's going to have to use boldness on some people who reckon that we walk according to the flesh. 
So to put it plainly, everyone alive today is walking in the flesh. And every person born since Genesis chapter 3 is born walking according to the flesh. Not only in, but also according to the flesh. But those who are in Christ are changed fundamentally so that though we remain in the flesh, we no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, what does according to mean even? We don't really talk like that in our vernacular. What does that mean? It means that when you're in the flesh, the carnal and sinful desires that are innate to a sinful human being used to be the default governing principle of our desires, our actions, our thinking, the default governing principle. And now, having been freed from that, if you're a Christian, the spirit who indwells you is now the default governing principle that determines how you act, how you think, how you live, how you make your travel plans, how you decide to talk to somebody in a letter or go see them in person, how you decide whether or not you're going to charge money or work on your own and not charge them any money. It's the Spirit. He's going to walk according to the flesh. No longer. And he, he proves it. He argues for it. Because you can say it all day. You can say all day. No, no, no. It's not true. Well, Paul gives him some proof. He describes the war that he's waging and the weapons that he's got. He says they're not fleshly, worldly weapons. These are spiritual, powerful weapons. So look in verse 46. Verse 4 begins, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Paul's weapons aren't fleshly. They're not worldly. The Corinthians have seen him in action. They have first-person evidence. Paul uses basically what amounts to a siege warfare metaphor. That's what the language is. And you can see it once you know that right there in the text. Verse 4, the destruction of fortresses. These ungodly beliefs, ideologies, philosophies, theologies, and everything else are like these fortresses. And Paul's laying siege. He's going to destroy them. Verse 5 in the NIV, that we are demolishing arguments, tearing them down. Every lofty opinion raised up like a high tower against the knowledge of God. Paul's pulling them all down one by one. And after he smashes through the gate, pulls down all the walls, there are going to be captives. There are going to be some prisoners. And Paul's going to deal with them too. Every thought, every argument, all of that, he's going to take everybody captive. He's going to impress irrefutably the truth of God contained in the scriptures irresistibly such that God's truth is shown to be right and everything else false. Paul adds a word about some that won't come quietly. We're ready to punish all disobedience. That's the way it goes in these cities, right? Maybe you conduct a long siege and when you get in there, there's a whole bunch of people, no more defenses. Most of them probably surrender. Probably some of them don't. 
Paul's not backing down. He's beginning to dismantle misconceptions, the rumors. It's the same thing Paul says in verse 11 of our text, the last verse. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, that is, bold, such persons we are also indeed when present. Paul's saying the patience of God will run out. God is slow to anger. God doesn't turn away entirely from anger. Those are different. The patience of God is going to run out. Paul understands that he wants to have mercy. He wants people to repent. But he also knows that in the end, as long-suffering as God is, Paul's not going to be afraid to use his authority in the way that he knows he might have to. But he doesn't want that in there of verse 6. He's ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. He cannot get away from the fact that he wants these people to obey. That's how he wants it to end. Paul's behavior with them, his meekness with them and his boldness from afar, his change in travel plans, it wasn't about his own insecurity or failures or something of that sort. He knew it would be better for them if he didn't come. And this idea of Paul's authority, his rightful authority, becomes a core idea of verse 7 through 11, our second section. Paul's authority is given by Jesus for building up. By Jesus for building up, verses 7 through 11, our second main point. We get to tackle for a minute verse 7 because depending on what translation you have in your lap, you're going to read something different. The NASB reads, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. That's a statement, a description. The ESV says, look at what is before your eyes. That's a command, an imperative. They're different. And totally different meanings. (laughs) And really good translations, you know. (laughs) We're going to be brief. I'm going to tell you, I believe it's a command. The main reason is because that verb, when it appears in that form every other time in the New Testament, it's a command. There there are good arguments to go the other way. That's not a simple subject, but I'm telling you where I land, and that's how I'm going to interpret what it means. So it would sound like the ESV, look at what is before your eyes, or maybe even more clearly the CSB, look at what is obvious. Look at what's right in front of your face. Look. And what's he talking about? What's so obvious is... They don't have any reason to doubt Paul. There's no reason to doubt him. They have this one issue of a misconception that's circulating, but they know him. He was there a long time. They saw all his behavior. They saw his conduct. They saw the power of the Spirit come through him. There's no reason to doubt him. Look, right in front of your face, you have all the evidence. Look at it. It's all there. 1 Corinthians 9.1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Listen to this. Are you not my work in the Lord? He was their father in the faith. If anybody else is Christ, so are we. There's no reason for doubting. And then in verse 8, he makes the whole matter plain. The whole thing. 
you Corinthians have got the wrong idea. The authority that I have over you is not the same kind that you like. You like these false apostles who boast in themselves, who are hard and harsh to you. You can read the rest of 2 Corinthians. You're tempted to be kind of enamored by this kind of authority, and mine is not like that. That is not the kind of authority I have. So if you're going to evaluate on that basis, I'm going to fail. But that's the wrong criteria. No, Jesus gives authority to his ministers of the new covenant that is primarily, though not exclusively, for building you up. The very reason he put me in charge over you is to do good to you, to help you. And that's what I've been doing. And that explains all of my conduct to you. Every bit of it. All of it. Paul's probably alluding to make it more clear to the ministry of Jeremiah, Old Testament prophet, at the end of the history of Israel, when God's bringing judgment for all those centuries of disobedience and covenant breaking, all these later prophets are given these really hard messages because of where they're at in history. Things are bad. The people have disobeyed generally for hundreds of years. And most of their, their ministry, these prophets, was for tearing down. They were like chambers that came in to do the demolition and bring the judgment of God and in comes Babylon and it's awful. That was their role. So listen, don't turn there, but listen to Jeremiah 31, 28. You know Jeremiah 31, right? That's a new covenant passage we always think about. This is verse 28 of that chapter. God says, as I have watched over them to pluck up, that's bad, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster So I will, i.e. in the new covenant, watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Things aren't always going to be like this. The new covenant is coming. There's going to be some new Jeremiahs running around and they're not going to be doing the same thing that Jeremiah did. They're not going to be the sledgehammer. They're going to be the apostle Paul. And he's going to be there to build up and to plant. That's going to be the drumbeat of what God is doing through the Apostle Paul. Yes, there are exceptions. Yes, Paul knows he's going to have to use his authority to bring judgment. But generally, Paul knows he wants to build them up. That's what Paul wants to do for the Corinthians. That's what he's after. Listen to this. Paul's own desire to benefit the Corinthians as a new covenant apostle is what explains his meekness while among them. And it explains his severity when writing from afar. The counter-narrative being circulated as propaganda explaining some other reasons for Paul's meekness and his severe letters is not true. Paul shows them, here's the real reason. This is exactly what he said in 2 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. Why didn't he come? Why did he write a letter instead of coming face to face? Was he scared and a coward? He says, I call God as witness. That's not it. I came, I chose not to come to spare you. I'm trying to build you up. I'm trying to help you. Do you see the irony? The Corinthians thought it was Paul's moral deficiency 
that made him change his travel plans. They thought it was him. But the truth is, it was them. They were the problem. Their awful sin that Paul saw is the reason he had to change his plans and his desire to help them is the reason that he had to change his plans. They thought it was him, but it was really them. And this fits exactly with Jesus' own character. Paul, that's why he begins with Jesus, saying, I'm just acting like Jesus. I'm doing the same thing as our Lord. I'm using legitimate authority in a way that's patient, patient, pardon me, gentle, forbearing, and for your good. So Paul says, no, I, I won't be ashamed about boasting in this kind of authority. I won't be ashamed because it's Jesus who gave it to me. How could I be ashamed of that? And I won't be ashamed because it's to help you. It's not a shameful thing. You're not trying to manipulate them with scare tactics to control their behavior with threats from afar, verse 9. It's not what he's after. As we move towards a close, at the core of the text is the Spirit's work in dismantling the Corinthians' mistaken notion of authority and humility. Paul began by framing the whole issue around the plumb line, the pattern, the supreme example, Jesus Christ. So at the beginning of the paragraph, he hangs a line. There it is straight. And there it is, governing the conversation. And now we're going to talk about authority and humility. And we're going to see what lines up right there and what doesn't. Jesus didn't come, he said, to judge the world the first time. He said he came to save it, Luke 9, 56. That's why he submitted meekly. That's why he died on the cross for his enemy, enemies. And he rose from the dead, and now he's the king enthroned forever with, as he said, 28.18, So, friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, there are two things I want you to remember about this sermon. The first is that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, including authority over you. He's in charge of everything. And there is nothing that you or anybody else can do to change that. It can't be done. Second, Jesus uses that infinite authority in only the best ways. He's in charge, number one, and he's good, number two. You can be safe repenting of your sin, admitting to him what's true about you and what you've done and who you are, and trusting him to be gentle and forgive you. And Paul says his behavior is consistent with that pattern. Paul's Christ-like behavior and his desire to build up, not to tear down the Corinthians, explains his meekness when in person and his severity from afar. They're both aimed at loving them well. This week, dear precious people, consider Jesus and his authoritative meekness, his powerful forbearance, and his commanding 
gentleness. Consider your own relationships with authority. How is it with you and authority? We have a very confused world, always have, I suppose, about authority. For you, consider whether or not you're embracing and thankful for the people in your life who are seeking to use their rightful authority to help you. Is your reflex reaction to embrace that and see it as a kindness of God? Or to buck, to push it away, to resist authority? And what about when you're in a position of authority? Are you exercising that authority with gentle forbearance, with patient tenderness with those who are allotted to your care? Or are you harsh, quick to anger, sharp? What kind of authority are we wielding? Are we seeking to, to build up those allotted to our care? So consider the ways in your marriages in which this bear. Consider your parenting, how it is that you respond to your children, especially when they go astray. What about your work relationships? Perhaps you own a business and you have employees and you have serious authority over them, or perhaps you're just in any kind of managerial role at work. What about the people who kind of report to you? How do you treat them? How do you steward and use that authority? Run every relationship through the grid of Jesus' own holy and perfect authority. And then that precious patience that works its way out to his people. Stand all your relationships up against that plumb line. Look to Jesus again and again, full of power and inexplainably full of mercy. And seek to bring every relationship, every thought, all the ways you conceive of things, into obedience to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and for the authoritative, enthroned, once crucified, now risen Savior. So hard for us to comprehend how we could have at the same time all power, more power than we can imagine, all authority over all things. So majestic in his holiness, his hatred of sin. And that he would at the same time condescend low and get close to us patiently in long suffering seeking not to turn us away in condemnation and judgment, but even when we're wrong, to get close and be gentle and tender to us, Lord. It's a thought too good to comprehend. We praise you for your great love in the gospel, that you love sinners, and you treat us that way. I pray you'd bear fruit in our lives, Lord. Bring us into conformity with King Jesus. Cause the gospel to go forth. Make us so enthralled with him that he would come out of our mouth and that you would do 
what we know you're doing in the new covenant and expand the kingdom of Christ through the Spirit's power as the gospel goes along unhindered. We pray specifically that we would see people in this congregation a month from now, two months from now, who are not around. They're showing up and they've heard the truth about Jesus. They've been pricked to the heart. Make it so, Lord. Cause Christ to be honored. Pray in his name. Amen.